Hello and welcome to Happy Place, the show that leaves no part of the human condition unexplored, hopefully. I'm Fern Cotton and today I'm meeting Emma Barnett. Very naively and I kind of thought I couldn't miscarry an IVF baby because I'd tried so hard. We'd had tried so hard. They couldn't go. How could they go? Obviously, that's not medically sound or, or in line with research or the data. But I wasn't in the mood to apply research or data. I just was a woman really happily and gratefully pregnant after a lot of trying and a lot of medicine. Emma is, of course, a broadcaster, writer and author. She currently presents Woman's Hour on Radio 4, having previously presented the Emma Barnett show on BBC Radio 5 Live. Even if you weren't a regular listener, you'll definitely have seen the clips of her doing a phenomenal job holding political leaders to account. She's just started a new weekly newsletter called Trying with Emma Barnett. We're all constantly trying to do something, but in this case, Emma specifically means trying for a baby. She's been incredibly open over a number of years about the difficulties she's had conceiving and wrote a piece in The Times recently which has touched so many people. It definitely really moved me about having a miscarriage after getting pregnant through IVF. This was most definitely an eye-opening chat. We talked about the often very cruel language around infertility, the importance of empathy and the role hope can play in tough situations. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalised card from Moonpig. Add your favourite photos, a heartfelt message and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Before we get to the show, just one more thing that I am so excited about... I've got a Happy Place Festival update for you. Now, we have announced a swathe of things to see and do at this year's festival. There's the meditation and mindfulness teepee, the bookstool, the sanctuary, and of course, the little shopping village, and loads, loads more. Sessions and workshops are on sale for ticket holders now. So do book your tickets to make sure you don't miss the session you're particularly looking forward to. Go on, feed your soul, feed your creativity. You can find out more about what's on at this year's Happy Place Festival and you can book your tickets at happyplaceofficial.co.uk slash events. That's happyplaceofficial.co.uk slash events. Right, let's get on with it. Here's the show. Hello. You're up for it. (laughs) I am. Thank you. It's a beautiful booth you have where you make your your beautiful podcast. Oh, I'm so glad you like it. I'm so glad you're here. And I'm wondering how you're feeling because obviously this is a bit of a role reversal. Well, not for me necessarily, but for you, because you're usually in control and creating the flow of a conversation. And today you have to let go. How does that feel? Well, it's lovely. You've got the notes. I have no notes. Um, Yours are handwritten, which I'm Yeah, I'm really old school. And it's not even shorthand because I can't do it. It's long, (laughs) long form. There's big crossing outs as well. No, I I won't peek. I won't peek. But I like that. And you won't be able to read it. It's illegible. <laughs> no, my, I'm left-handed. Mine's utterly illegible. But um, it's hot. it's actually weird, isn't it, in radio studios? Because now we do obviously have it all on screen. And sometimes I feel screen is quite a barrier. So I try very hard to look over it. So I, I like that you've got a book. Yes. How do I feel about being interviewed? It's always odd. Yes, it's always mm. odd. Because I'm always three questions ahead on <laughs> two other interview plans or structures. And, you know, you never know how it's going to go and you have to respond. But... Yes, it's quite nice to try and answer your questions. I bet you start asking me questions at some point. You know, I'll try and not do that because when <laughs> I interview interviewers, it is a tendency. Or, or very short answers to try and disrupt your rhythm. I've had that a few times. Oh, I don't like that. I'm not going to do that. I don't like that. I want to bit. be a generous interviewee. <laughs> I know you will be. I want to be. What is the joy of interviewing other people for you? Why do you love it? I'm nosy. <laughs> um, I think that's a prerequisite of our 
our job, isn't mm-hmm. it? It depends on the type of interview. I mean, of course, if it's an interview, like I hope we're going to have about somebody's experience or if they're trying to share something because they know they have a bit of a platform and, and they can do that, just to get the best out of them. I think a lot of people have amazing things happen to them, but they aren't very good at finding the best parts of it to share. So I think, I hope the skill I can bring to those stories, especially of course, when it's members of the public and they haven't done it very often, is I can distill the best bits of what they need to say and try and help them say it. And I I suppose, so at the heart of that is storytelling. You know, they've got a story to tell. I just want to help them tell it. And I think some of the best interviews I've done are where you don't remember me at all. I know everything about that person, I think I, I can before obviously things always happen and you don't know what's going to happen in I only really do live broadcasting um, and I love that because you can't ever replicate that moment again but yes some of the best interviews you will not remember me and then there are very different interviews which are about power and about everything potentially a leader or a politician or a business leader or an army leader whatever I'm not saying that they're there to not say anything at all but there's a script And the process of that interview, you will remember me because I have to disrupt the flow. And I'm not there to help them tell the story that perhaps they want to tell. I'm there to try and get to the truth. So that's a very journalistic interview in a very different way where it's it's a technique. It's a whole thing that you you do. Do you think when you're interviewing someone, say it's an MP or the PM or whoever it might be, someone in power... Is there a desire for you to sort of get the humanness out of them as well? Because they can shut shop a little bit in in terms of showing who they are. It's much more about the messaging and, and what they need to say. I think it's about the topic. I've, I've interviewed MPs on their lives before. You know, if they've lost somebody and then they become a campaigner around, for instance, suicide prevention... Uh, I'm thinking of a couple of interviews around that. I've, I've interviewed people whose mothers have experienced domestic violence and they were children of that and then they've become campaigners. Where it's relevant, their lives, yes, that's very much the skin of the interview. It's the it's the skew of it. It's the point. But regularly, if it's about policy, that's a distraction, I would say. Yeah. I'm there to do business. They're there to do business. And my client is the listening public. Oh, I feel like excited, but a bit scared when you said <laughs> that just then. Like, I'm here to do business. Well, you know, they're, they're not, they're not come no, on. I love that. They've like, not I'm come excited on. By it. <laughs> they've not come on to tell me about their cat. <laughs> no. But on. we could talk about your lovely cat. We could talk cat. about Simon, my kitten, who, <laughs> whenever I walked in the house, I was like, I barely even said hello. Do you want to go in the front room and look at Simon, the kitten? <laughs> And I said, Which, I think I think my son, who's four, has sent you oh, because he's lobbying quite hard right he now. He needs for a cat. one. Honestly, Simon the Rescue Kitten has brought me just a lot of happiness this week. I love <laughs> him so much. Um, one of the things that I have tried to hone over, I don't know how many years I've been interviewing people just generally, but more so in the last sort of five years I've been doing the podcast or four mm-hmm. and a half years, is to cultivate the skill of reading when it's appropriate to to move a little bit forward, like a little dance and it's just a few steps back or maybe to pull back entirely on some subjects. Just knowing the the sort of right time and feeling the energy of the conversation. Is that something that you're sort of cognitively aware of when you're interviewing someone? Yes, I I think it's, I think you do it very well. I really do. And I think some of the questions that you're, you know, you're putting to people aren't even questions I can hear. You know, they're sort of a statement of something they've said and then you want to see where they take it. And then it gives you permission because even an introduction to somebody, you know, the way you couch their story can be very different to the way that they want. So I think less is always more, especially when it's something sensitive and then you see where somebody takes you. But I do think there are certain questions that I feel, you know, if you, you're at home and you think, I would be shouting that at the radio. Yeah. And you do mm. have to, certainly in my job, uh, you know, whether Newsnight, Woman's Hour, my old show on Five Live, it would be easier not to go there. Yeah. And I'll still, if it's right, you know, I'll never, I've never asked a question. I have to say, I don't think where I haven't gone somewhere I thought I had to for yeah. that moment. I'm sure I may have asked questions people think I shouldn't have gone there. I'm not saying I get it right all the time. But I will try and do the one that you'll shout at the radio, even if it is a bit, oh gosh, here we go. I'm not sure they'll want to go there. And how do you handle that pressure? Because sometimes, I obviously love doing this podcast. It is just a privilege to talk to people on that level and meet on a very sort of human level. Human to human, we're just 
you know, you forget about people's job, their background, whatever. It's like we're just having a, a lovely chat and meeting in this really great place. I will never, ever tire of that. But sometimes I really feel the pressure of it because I really want to get it right. Perhaps a little bit because I'm a perfectionist, but also <laughs> because I want to do it justice and I want to honour the subject matter and I want to honour the person and their time and their energy. How do you cope with that pressure? Well, I think to your first part, which is people agree to come on something, to talk about something. And if you honour that, you know, whether it's the book, whether as we'll talk about women and fertility and, and some of the issues I've recently shared and, and done a newsletter about, if you cover that as well as obviously some other bits, I don't think anyone can leave shortchanged. Mm. If you ask somebody onto your podcast and go to a part of their life that they have not consented to, that they have not shared, maybe they've shared it once but because they had to, or maybe they don't want to talk about their sexuality or, or whatever it might be, if you take liberties with that trust, I think that's where you aren't trusted and you don't feel good about yourself. The person doesn't feel good and the person clams up. So I think there's consent and there's sort of understanding and mutual trust when somebody wants to talk to you. How do I cope with the pressure to get it right? The sort of other bit, very conscientious about answering your questions, (laughs) uh, is I do my research and I think I can only rely on it in the end. Mm. I do obviously feel enormous pressure to get things right. Um, Recently, I interviewed Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, which was her first interview uh, since being freed after being detained in Iran for the last six years. It's an enormous pressure to make sure you create the space for somebody to talk who's been planning an interview and planning that conversation for as long as they've been away and locked up away from their family. So there's from that, you know, through to Emma Thompson was on the other day on Woman's Hour. I love her new film. I know, well, she, isn't that... It's brilliant. It's, it's, isn't, it's, doesn't it sponsor this programme a little yes. bit? Yes. Yes, I heard that on your mini driver I, I talked about it with complete honesty and passion because I just thought it was yes. brilliant. Katie Brand's so clever writing she it. Is. It's amazing. She's wonderful. So um, good. I had the privilege of working with her a few years ago. She's amazing. Amazing. And Emma came on Woman's Hour and, and we pre-recorded it. And, you know, you have a conversation like that and it's Emma Thompson. You could go anywhere. Yeah. But we go to pubes, obviously. <laughs> And she demise. What her comments on pubes? Well, she, she, you, I'm gonna. You have to listen back to I'm this because it was a whole thing. But you know, she's mourning the the demise of the full bush, right? Which is I very agree. serious. Yeah. And one minute you're doing that, and the next minute you're talking about the Me Too movement in light of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard verdict in America. So, you know, that pressure is a different pressure because you just want to make it as brilliant as possible for the time that you have with Emma Thompson. Mm, when talking about pubes. <laughs> The pube, the pube chat was great. It was great. Pubes don't get talked about enough, do they? It's no, sort of, you know. And she stands there full, fully naked. Oh, I've seen it all. I know. I and was clapping at the at my laptop. Well, at she that said, point. she said, all on the record. I'm not breaking any confidences that she shaved it all off or had it shaved off once, and it never grew back quite how it was before. Wow. See, this is it. Never shave your pubes is the uh, <laughs> mantra. The end of that story. Is our work here done? <laughs> I think it is. I think we can wrap this one up, Emma. Um, so, look, I want to talk about this beautiful article that you wrote that has resonated with so many people out there. Couples, women, people going through a similar situation to yourself. And in this article, you talk about fertility and you say the first time round, you could do so in the context of you know having a child at the end of it. Your son is now four. Yes. But this time you felt a real duty to talk about fertility without conceiving yes. and and you felt that that was really important I know that there were there was obviously um, some thought behind whether you should write it or not and we can talk about that as well but it's it's obviously a subject that needs you know this subject hasn't been talked about enough and this resonated hugely with people was it a freeing sort of cathartic exercise for you in writing it and now I'm sure connecting with lots of other people going through similar yes I mean I I wrote this article, The Bones of It, not long after I had a miscarriage in January. And I just didn't know what to do with myself. And I found myself going to write, which I am a broadcaster primarily, but I used to work for a newspaper. I've written a book. I don't count myself, if you like, as first and foremost a writer. So so it surprised me, even though I like writing, that I just found myself unable to sleep night after night at a computer trying to distill what had just happened. And sometimes, especially I would say as a journalist, it's all about the opening line. And if you get the opening line for something, I didn't then know if I was going to publish it or where I might publish it or if anyone would see it. 
beyond, I don't know, my husband or a couple of friends, family. And I just wrote, history's written by the victors, and that's true on the fertility battlefield. And I I felt really weird when I was quite briefly pregnant. I mean, we got to nine weeks, but the baby died at seven. That potentially, despite it being, you know, nearly two years of hell to go through all these rounds of IVF to try to have a second child, try to have a sibling for our son, that I was going to emerge again publicly, once again saying, oh, I'm pregnant and and I had IVF again. Because when we had IVF the first time, that was after two and a half years or so of trying with no luck. And the first round worked. And my goodness, I have learned how lucky that was and what a miracle our son is in every sense of the word because of this experience. It's reinforced it. And so the only silver lining of... I, I also very naively and I kind of very sweetly love myself for this thought I couldn't miscarry an IVF baby because I'd tried so hard we'd had tried so hard it, it, it they couldn't they couldn't go how could they go obviously that's not medically sound or, or in line with research or the data but I wasn't in the mood to apply research or data I just was a woman really happily and gratefully pregnant after a lot of trying and a lot of medicine and so then when that happened I just thought the only good thing that might come from this is talking about something while it's going wrong, which is an anathema to the social media age we live in. Mm -hmm. I know people talk, and you've done enormously good things about mental health more. I know that social media and the media is used to talk about when things are going wrong. But sometimes it's used, obviously, later, not contemporaneously, and I also know that women, even if they aren't having fertility issues per se, they may not just, I'm not downplaying it, they may be having miscarriages, repeat miscarriages so they can get pregnant. But whatever it is to try and have a baby, we do not very specifically and very understandably talk about it while it's happening mm. because we have mortgages, we have ambitions, we want to escape, we're superstitious. There are so many reasons... I'm sure that others could give, but those are some of the headline ones. And I just thought, why does it feel like I have to be brave to talk about loss and infertility while it's happening? Why is that such a taboo? And if while you present the world's longest women's programme, you can't take one for the team, then when can you? So that's when I sort of thought, oh my gosh, somebody might read this beyond me. And I did find it cathartic, but I stopped caring about how it would be received. I just hoped if I did publish it, it could help somebody. I mean, you that's the bit you can never control, can you? No. The reaction to anything. And I think, again, it's a skill that we all have to cultivate in the job we're doing in the public eye because even, you know, an interview, a podcast, whatever, when it's gone out, that bit is just then the free fall. You know, people will react to it in well, any it's art, given isn't way. It, in a way. Yeah, like yeah. that, you know, yeah. an art on the wall. All subjective. You could see whatever and, you want. Absolutely, absolutely. So I imagine that that was scary, but I'm really happy to hear that you had quite a definite feeling that I'm going to be okay, whatever. And, and uh, But I know during the writing process, or certainly whilst you were sort of ruminating on, on writing it, you were worried because you've already had a child and you've been able to get pregnant through IVF that people's reaction would be, you've already got a kid, what are you moaning about? Which is, again, it feels like a very British sort of reaction to something, perhaps. But that's it completely ignoring your heartache and your feelings and, and the process and that so many other people are going through that. So... I'm extremely glad that you changed your mind because it is a very powerful piece of writing and it undoubtedly has helped and soothed so many people out there. And when you're talking about you've got to get that first bit right, within that opening paragraph, you very powerfully wrote that you're reporting live from the front line of failure, which was a you know obviously brilliantly written line, but it made me think back to the amount of beautiful conversations I've had with Elizabeth Day personally and professionally. I'm not going to say anything here that we've talked about personally that she no, wouldn't no, be happy with, but she's been, become a friend of mine. And... She's amazing. She's been, you know, so generous in, in sharing her experience. But the language used towards women with fertility is so loaded and and unusual and wrong, whether it's, you know, these are all things that are said quite freely by 
people in the medical world, you have an inhospitable womb mm. where your body has failed to respond to the IVF. And the, the weight for the, for the female going through this, it feels like the burden is still disproportionately unfair and wrong. Yes. But I mean, I mean, the language of, of it is, is vile. Mm. You know, there's no way around that. And I, off the back of the article, I started a, a weekly newsletter called Trying. And I just wrote a post that I, had, I, I didn't really know I felt, but about the rest of my life, especially my career, but also the rest of my life. I love information. I love knowledge. I love as much of it as possible. I can't read enough. I can't look at something enough if I'm going to see it to try and understand it. But actually, medically, I am so done with being told this, that or the other, especially I also have a condition called endometriosis, which is why I have fertility issues. And nobody knows what causes it. One in 10 women have it. Uh, it's hugely painful for most of the women who have it, not all of them. And, um, you know, we, we don't have a cure. So I've actually found, yes, I'm surrounded by very negative language and, and diagnoses, but I'm also incredibly frustrated by how those words don't lead to solutions. They're almost pointless to me. And that's why when talking about the miscarriage, you know, and knowing the data and knowing the facts, I just for once couldn't be asked to marry them with reality because it's been pointless so many times. The other thing, though, I would say is I knew there were various sentences in that article. And, you know, I wrote it and I tried to choose my words very carefully and it will never be right for everyone. But the front lines of failure will have rankled with some because they don't want to say it's a failure not to have a baby. But that's not what I'm saying. My body has failed to do what other women's bodies can do naturally. And I am not fine with that, but I have to accept that, 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 that it is a failure. Because if, for instance, you were just constantly trying to have a baby and you couldn't, but you weren't allowed to think of it as a failure, I think that's also quite damaging. You know, I, I don't have a problem with that word and I own it because it's the truth. You know, the truth isn't always easy, but it at least is real and it's something factual. In a world of very limited understanding, you know, IVF is incredible. I mean, I, I can't believe I live in an age where it's available. I equally know it's a postcode lottery for a lot of women. My first baby was born on the NHS. I know some women would carry on and on and on, but funds stop them from doing so, or they're medically not able to anymore. But there is still a, a gap in the knowledge as to when they put that embryo in, if you're lucky enough to be able to do it, if you're lucky enough to, to have an embryo that, that is viable of some degree, they do not know what happens thereafter. So there is a bit of magic in IVF where there, there's a knowledge gap. And that's the most frustrating bit. So I had an embryo in me. I saw it go onto the screen. And two weeks later, after the dreaded two-week wait or 10-day wait, however your doctor tells you, it's not there anymore. Where's it gone? And then you have a terrible period, as I always do with endometriosis. And there you are. And so I felt like saying the front lines of failure just is where I am present day. And I am okay with saying that. But some people will not have liked it. Well, it's your story and it's your version of your events. So, you know, again, the reaction is kind of, it, you just have to let it go, don't you? And, and, and tell your version of events. But I wonder, you know, it, you're accepting of the language you're using and applying yes. it to, to your own story. Is there room for hope, though? You know, because it sounds quite definite when you say failure. I love that you've brought up one of my um, most contested words. I, I say this <laughs> to my husband, I absolutely bloody hate hope. Why? Uh, because hope gets you back in the casino, which is how I like to refer to uh, IVF. And, it, you know, it's not a perfect analogy. And I'm sure my amazing doctor would not like to be referred to as a croupier. Um, <laughs> he's definitely not. Okay. Um, Just on the side. He's wonderful, but um, he's definitely not that. But there is an element of that. And hope is amazing. Of course it is. And I've interviewed people with all sorts of illnesses over the years who have only survived through hope, a mixture of hope and meds, and then just hope, you know, hope is so important for us as humans. I'm not, I'm not declaring war on hope, but it's also really hard to live with. Yeah. And false hope is basically what I can't cope very easily with, what I don't think anyone can cope with. And, and you could be like, I've had different IVF times where you know, you're cruising along. It's not fully taken over your head. You know, I am very happily distracted, of course, by work, love, friendship, our son. 
you know, doing IVF with a with a child we can get to if you want is completely different, you know, and you, you've referred to that. But f- you just get to the last, once it's been put in the embryo, you know, and you, you've cashed your chips basically and you are waiting for the dice. You're waiting to see if it's going to come up for you. And you're just screwed. Like the last 10, 11 days before the pregnancy test. And you're just, you know, you're living on hope. And then your hopes are dashed. All your luck comes in and then you have a miscarriage in my particular case. And of course, my luck very much came in the very first time in in 2017. And I know it's a crass analogy, but it kind of works for me. And I find hope one of the most cruel elements of the whole thing. When do you know it's false hope, though, is my next thought. Yes. Because you don't, do you? You, it's you, you, you declare if it is or not, I guess. Yes. Um, well, I know when, in this particular scenario, of course, there's lots of other scenarios with hope. I know it's failed, our false hope, when I start to fill my period cup. So the only good thing about having endometriosis in this context is your body quite definitely tells you when a period is coming. And I have a particular set of symptoms. And it will ha- it will happen two to three days before the pregnancy test. I will feel my body, the pain come in. It's sort of like going under and dragging to the floor, legs hurting. And I know quietly it's it's not worked that time. And I started not to want to tell my husband straight away because I'd like him to have a bit more hope for a little bit longer. And he is so much more optimistic than me. Obviously, he's not having his mind changed by dr- you know yeah, hormones. Yeah. We're having hormones anyway, but then synthetic ones. But I don't like killing his hope. I, I really don't. That's a big responsibility for you to carry around on top of all the stuff that you're dealing with for you. Yes, because I could be wrong. And so I haven't usually been wrong because I do feel I know my own body. But that last time that I did get pregnant, which is the only the second time I've ever been pregnant, because I can't do it naturally, I can't do it without assistance, I had actually had period pains. And so my mind was blown. My mind was blown and I mm. hadn't thought it had worked. So... That was quite weird because I thought, gosh, the only bit of certainty I've always had is that I kind of know my body. And then I felt my body slightly played a trick on me. But, you know, I wasn't going to get angry because everything for a very short space had had gone well. I mean, you ask a lot of open questions in the article about, well, uh, you're sort of alluding to hope in a sense because you're saying, you know, when do you stop? How many more rounds of IVF do you do? And obviously there's varying situations that will impact that it's an extremely expensive thing to do outside of the NHS structure but also emotionally to go on that emotional roller coaster again and again I guess only you know when enough's enough and, and you can't go through that anymore yeah I mean if you told me Fern I was going to do what I've done I wouldn't have believed you as in terms of how many rounds that we're at and and when I got back to work after maternity leave I deliberately, with my producer, created a programme where IVF hadn't worked. And it was sort of my love letter. I had a load of women on who had spent many millions of pounds and they did not have many children. A couple of them had had them. And I, it was sort of weirdly my, not love letter to them, but I wanted to, I wanted to show them to the world. I wanted to help share their stories because I don't, I like following up stories. I like seeing how stories end and I want the media to have stories in them where it hasn't always gone right. So a lot of them have, as you say, check out when they have to check out for various different reasons. And I think I'll know when it's the right time. I mentioned in the piece this woman I go marching around my neighbourhood with <laughs> um, and the whole concept of IVF fairies, which is a really nice I thing. I love this. Talk to, <laughs> because, you know, friendship becomes the backbone of so many conversations on this podcast with whatever subject we're I know, covering. I, I hear it as a and theme. And it's beautiful. And I, but I love the IVF fairy concept. <laughs> well, I didn't know about it. It's, it's gorgeous. Like, it's like a secret underground network of uh, women not wearing wings, but might as well be. And um, the very first time I was doing an injection, I was doing an awards ceremony. And this, you know, when you can sometimes just say something to a stranger that you could never say to somebody you know. And I don't know what it was about it, but she was the woman on stage helping me hand the award. I was hosting. It was a business awards event. And she was helping me hand them out to the right person. And she was just lovely. And she looked gorgeous. She had a nice air about her aura. 
And I just was a bit scared to go to the toilet and put this needle in my tummy. I'd never done it before. I definitely couldn't ask my husband because he's so squeamish. So I'm like, I'm not one of those people who, if you do have a partner, has a partner, is like, I'm totally there. I'm putting the jab in your butt. You know, it's not that. I am alone uh, with this particular issue because he, he, he faints with right. having his own blood taken. Not actually, but nearly. And so I just said to her, I'm doing this crazy thing. I'm going to go and put some drugs in my tummy before this award's doing. She's like, oh, I've had IVF. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, what? And her two children were through IVF. She said, I'll be your IVF fairy. Give me a name. Give me a number. Gorgeous. All of that. I said, what's that? And she said, just text me anytime. Have a little chat. I'll boost you. I'll boost you up. I was like, is that a thing? She went, yep, you need one. Like real business-like. So I, I said, love it. Okay. And, you know, she sent me things like, have a bit of pineapple. Have a few nuts. Maybe Brazil nuts. Like... Oh. Not saying it was going to make me pregnant, but just nice things for your body. So lovely. And um, that's where it began. And then fast forward, I now have three or four women who dip into me and to kind of pay it forward. And I, I have to say, you get to know each other really quickly when you ask each other questions. Or, But my particular one for each other is a woman who lives down the road and we have a child the same age. So it's very... Um, pleasant, should I put it like that, that we both have a child so we don't have to um, accommodate each other's story yeah. that much that's different. It's 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 nice to match. It's a weird thing to say. We have se- slightly separate medical issues. She also is a doctor, so she's got great knowledge that I don't have. Not necessarily about this, but just about general yeah. things. And honestly, you don't want to be near us when it hasn't worked. You know, we mm. literally march and cry and have... I think one, you know, during lockdown when you were allowed at that point to have a walk with someone, I remember we had like quite similar big puffer coats. It was really cold and I like laid, I filled them with beers. <laughs> I used to do that when I was a teenager. I used to take the lining out the bottom puff of it and stuff beer down there. Oh, very so cool. old school, Emma. I, like I mean, it. I took like three beers of whatever yeah. I had, you know, a gluten free one, obviously. <laughs> and um, we just marched about. Oh. And she has got me back in the saddle, actually. She's got quite a loss of hope. I've I've got a bit of a hope deficit. Mm. It's really wonderful when you feel you can talk to somebody on that level when you can turn up as you on that day. You don't even have to do the the pleasantries. You're just into it. It's that's golden. Well, I'm. You don't have to have many friends, but the ones that you have, if you can be what I like to call beyond politeness. Oh yeah, I'm there. I love that. <laughs> and also when you can just be silent with each other. Yeah, I mean we're not. And uh, <laughs> there's no room to be silent. And if I could just finish this point um, <laughs> between us. But she, um, yeah, she's, she's a wonderful It's woman. really important. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I just want to go back to endometriosis because um, my friends who have it, there's many women out there who are, who are suffering with it. And similarly, with fertility issues, um, there are two situations where you really end up at work suffering in silence because you might not feel you can approach your workmates, your teammates, the CEO, your line manager, whoever it is, to talk about these things. And it's deeply disturbing and painful and disruptive to your day. And then on top of that, if you've got fertility issues going on, you talked about this in the article that there's obviously so much fear around what that means for your job. Mm. And you love your job and it's your career and you don't want to have to, you know, lose a job because you're looking to have another child. And I still find that unbelievably archaic that we're in that position without any sort of solution. And I guess, and again, you nod to this in the article, the the only solution that seems present is for us to look to indigenous cultures now or to way back in history when people had that village mentality where everybody was there to help raise a child, to help the mum, to help the pregnant person, to help so they could go off and do other things and work and indigenous cultures still work like that around the world today because these nuclear families are just, it's a lonely Mm. little setup and we're all in them 
And it it just seems mad that we're still in that position. I mean, I, I remember having very similar feelings when I was going through a big depression that I, I just didn't tell anyone. I was like, if I tell anybody here at work, this was when I was at radio, maybe I they won't want me here anymore or maybe someone will tell someone that I won't get that job that I want to get. It's still so bizarre that there's that vulnerability for people wanting to share deeply important or physically painful situations, but we we can't quite do that without fear. Yeah, I I think some things here and there may have changed, but I doubt they have changed that much for either of those scenarios that, that you describe. And I think when I wrote the book, which was called It's About Bloody Time, period, uh, and was all these stories that women had never shared publicly, a lot of them very funny about periods. I um, I don't think I'll ever write another book, so it's good just to have done one period, full stop. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it was an experience in me rebadging pain as weakness to pain as strength. And so when you talk about work and the workplace, you know, you don't even have to be somebody who thinks they're particularly strong or macho. It's because you don't want to be perceived as vulnerable or incapable, you know? And and I always say, just sort of, you know, to the point about women and children, let's say you are lucky enough to ha- have a pregnancy and, and go the term. Women work until they're nine months pregnant. Yeah. I mean, which is doing a marathon in your body every day. You want to know if we're capable or not. It's the antithesis of what you are told to be thinking that you're now checked out. You've checked in and some because you're doing that. So Mm -hmm. a lot of my thinking about strength and weakness in the workplace changed when I started to realise how chronic and painful my condition was. And I would find my work a solace and I would find escaping into whether it's your work, your book, if I'm interviewing you or a political issue or whatever, very, very helpful. However, I work in a world of creativity where I can sit on my tush, right? If you are stacking shelves, if you are in a factory, if you are flying aeroplanes, whatever, you will not have some of the liberty. And, you know, we're seeing it now in the menopause and this idea of a menopause mandate and workplaces signing up to it. There are just some jobs and some workplaces and the fact that lots and lots of people are in work, but in poverty or not able to have a fixed contract that mean all of these conversations are completely pointless, which is why... They shouldn't be, yeah. but I still live in the world we're in, not the world I want to be, as we all are. And that's why I suppose when somebody like me writes about how some of this stuff feels, even if you cannot relate to my freedom to be able to write it, and hopefully I still do have a job at the end of it, you will feel like other people are in the same boat because I broke cover. Mm, yeah. Because I can. Yeah. yeah. I think. Hey, you can. <laughs> I did. Anyway, do- yeah, you did it. You're doing it. And, and it, you know, it's that that's that's why it resonated, because you're talking about stuff that it's about the feelings of it. We, you know, we can there's always going to be varying circumstances for everybody and different levels of pain and severity to the situation. But to talk about it in the open, honest and very felt way that you did, I think that's what's you know touched people so hugely and. And, you know, got the conversation stirred up again. It's so interesting. And and for you to acutely look at secondary fertility issues, because, again, you know, I, I hadn't really given that a thought in my yes. um, ignorance, to be honest with you. No, I wanted to come back to that. Actually, the, I, 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 do, I do obviously encounter, as you will have done over the years, um, people who get in touch to tell me I've said something wrong mm. or I, I, didn't, time. I didn't quite mean it like this. Or, um, you know, Emma, you've got this verbal tick that I don't like listening to on the radio, but also I enjoy the show. Um, and actually, one woman did correct me on Instagram and it was quite it was, in a way, a pedantic point. But she was right. And I was quite grateful to her. But I, I'll come to the sort of point about already having a child. But she said, Emma, your situation is actually worse than you've presented it. Um, you don't have secondary infertility because you had primary infertility. So secondary infertility was used as a phrase. I can't remember if I put it in or if it was put in in the edit for the piece for the Saturday Times magazine. But actually, it's often, it's usually meaning a woman who has had her first child naturally or, or with no assistance. And then they can't have the second for whatever the reason. And she was like, no, no, you were you were a problem the first time around. Mm. So you're just basically infertile on your own and, um, you know, without assistance. And I thought, yes, she's completely right. I, uh, I, I misused that phrase. Thank you very much. Things were actually worse <laughs> than I build them. Excellent. Um, so, so there was that sort of definition point in case anyone's listening uh, would like me to, to clarify or, or correct my mistake. But I 
did think and had felt for a while, past tense, I'm still grappling with it, that I will be viewed, it would be viewed as greedy to want a second child when you have had the miracle of the medical miracle and everything bit of magic and everything else that goes into being able to have your first child when you are unable to do so naturally without assistance. And I then just realised that was just not true. And I am, I just wanted to say this as well, because for some reason it just wasn't quite relevant, maybe, but my only slight regret about something I didn't put in the article is I am an only child. And the reason I want to say that is so many lovely people and I am still getting messages and I am going to reply to as many of them as possible. I want to try and reply to all of them. It's just they come in through various ways and you can miss them. So many people have been in touch to tell me about only children being amazing. And I just want to say and that, that their child is fine or that they're fine. And I know that, you know, I know that firsthand. Yes, there are a couple of downsides. For instance, I'm not that great in big groups because I grew up just with adults and it was like, you know, me, myself and I quite a lot. Um, so there are a couple of downsides, I'm sure. And maybe you did miss having siblings and my house was very not, not a very noisy one. And But by and large, as a child, you don't care. You really don't if you've got the other ingredients. Yeah, so your I, normal is your normal. You don't have any different tea exactly. as a kid. So I always used to laugh because people would say, oh, have you got brothers and sisters? You know, whatever age of my life. Happens probably a bit less now. And I would say, oh, no, I'm an only child. Like, fine, bold as brass. And they'd go, oh, how is that? And I would go, <laughs> really? I'm great. Oh I'm, 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 I'm good. Thank you so much for I'm your... I'm sure there are lots of people out there who would like to be an only child yes. who really can't stand their you siblings. You might not so get on with your black and white. Yeah. You know, I, I would say, you know, it's rationalisation of yeah. like, people around you sometimes. Um, so, so thanks for the concern over the years to all mm-hmm. those and but the other side by the way is i'm completely obsessed with siblings not for myself and even or even for my child for our son i like my my uh, husband's got two brothers and i would he was like stop being so like a david attenborough about <laughs> how we interact i'd be like how does it work why do you get on <laughs> like that from behind a bush yeah, exactly. in the and you know my my husband's a middle child i'm like so did you get attention were you just forgotten because like sometimes his parents cannot remember a thing about him <laughs> and i just find that fascinating uh, and i'll be like leafing through photo albums to try and get a sense of it so so i do know it's okay and i know it's okay for the child but what I have had to come to terms with is it's also okay for me to want what is naturally available to a lot of people. Not everyone, and not everyone wants it, but it is allowed and it is okay. Well, like you say in the article, that uh, shame that you might carry around, or not you now, but initially, or if people had suggested that you were greedy and you took that on, that doesn't apply to, to fertile people. They wouldn't have to ever even consider that. So no, you, I'd like to have another baby, please. You don't have to go to bed that night and, and calibrate your desire. No. You, you might not, you know, you might have desired to do something else and then it ends up with a baby you hadn't planned. But, mm. you know, there's there's all sorts of other things. And I, I have to say, obviously, you will have experienced this. You, you do always get negative responses when you put things out. Mm-hmm. And this is a very low ratio of negative response. I'm sure. Very low. In fact, I think only on one hand can I count a couple of points. And I would say that two of them, which are about this exact point. So one woman wrote, I believe it was a woman, you never know on social media, just said, you are right. You are greedy. Be grateful for what you've got. I had IVF. It never worked for three years or four years or something like that. And, you know, you shouldn't have written this and you should be grateful for your lot, blah, blah, blah. And I could only see her pain. Yeah. I could li- I could only see her pain. And I, I didn't then follow what happened to her or, or any comments around that. It was on Instagram and there were loads and loads of comments coming in at the time. But I really hope people then didn't wade in. And, ha- you know, there are some women who will never have a child. And I will never, ever pretend I can speak for them. But I walk behind them and I will never leave the company of those women not fully Mm. and I respect them and I I have a huge amount of feeling for them Mm. and I I don't mind that she wrote it yeah well like you say you know she's that's her story and she's in pain and you know that's that's her reaction to your story but it's 
you know, that's why, although you don't particularly, you know, assign to this being a brave thing that you've done, like you said earlier on, it is because, you you know, you are, you're saying something deeply personal about yourself and you're putting it out there and you're, you're going to get a reaction. But the last thing you need right now with everything that you've got going on mentally, emotionally and physically is to lump shame into the equation, which I think... Yeah, I thought I'd get rid of that one. Yeah, just, yeah, just yeah. Like, just you know, don't on, need on it. the conveyor belt of what's available Yeah, let's here. not have that. Yeah, and I, I did also get a really um, sweet message from, from a guy I know. I studied with him at uni and he'd taken the article, you know, in a few places, very literally. And I, I, I wrote in the article that fertile people cannot comfort infertile people, not fully, not not truly. And it is one of those things I do think you do have to have had a bit of skin in the game to fully get where it can take you. That does not mean that my friends who have not had the issues, I don't want. Um, But there is a dividing thing sometimes between friendship groups and between friends when, you know, empathy is limited. Sympathy's there, but empathy... And he wrote me this message saying, hi, I know I'm fertile and I can offer limited um, sympathy, a limited capability or understanding it. I just loved that first line of a WhatsApp. But he was trying to front up. I want to tell you I'm sorry Mm. and I really care. But equally, I know you might want me to, you know, F off kind of thing. Um, And and actually made me laugh like harder than I've laughed. That's a great friend. (laughs) That's a great mate. I think it's really good to establish your fertility in a a message (laughs) as a man to a woman. That's great. What a legend. I love him. That's so wonderful. Um, Since the birth of your son, you've now, you've had five rounds of IVF. Is that correct? Yes. So obviously that process is lengthy and you, as you've talked about, are injecting yourself. There's extra hormones involved. How has that affected you when you've, you've been at work? You know, you have a very high pressure job. You're interviewing high powered people to the public. There's a lot of pressure there. How, how's, have you found that? Yeah, I mean, and also the, the the process of this started at the beginning of lockdown. So, you know, there was kind of like, get your drugs, go out, you know, then everything was shut down. You know, it's it's been it's been kind of crazy because it's had that lockdown intense vibe yeah. as well to it where, you know, I think we were talking about Elizabeth Day earlier and she's written about grief during lockdown as well being even more intense Mm -hmm. and everybody's mental health feeling if you had something over here it may have become more intensified so I think there were fewer places to escape or kind of feel if there if you know each round not working you sort of felt more and more within a box because you were in your home um but I was lucky to be able to go to work so I think dealing with the emotional aspect of it and the roller coaster of that, at least I could go to work. I did find that good. And I, even on the drugs, find being able to work and fully focusing on something really helpful. And I think living your life on drugs, it's kind of, you you play a game. Is that me? Or is that um, that pill? Or is that that estrogen patch I've just stuck to my thigh? Or, you know, you you sort of trying to figure out, a bit like when you're on the pill. So I was on the pill for 10 years or so. And I love this phrase I read about being chemically castrated on the pill. So for some people, it's great. It doesn't change them that much. And they don't really notice the difference in themselves when they come off. But for others, it changes them a little bit. They go behind a glaze. And I think... Regardless of whether you've been on IVF drugs or not, I mean, they're pretty potent at times. They do affect me. They don't always affect lots of women, but they do in lots of ways. Even if you don't have it, um, you know, in your mood, you know, just your tummy being like a blueberry because you've injected so many times. You're very sensitive, bloated. IVF clothes I've heard about as well. I haven't explored that yet. But I think if you've been on any kind of drugs, let's say it's for chronic pain, mental health issues, you do know if you're a bit different and you're trying to go through that. So I am able to still work and perform well. And I know that, you know, I have been doing that and and things have been going well. But do, is there a lot left of me at the end of it sometimes, you know, at the end of the day, energy wise, or, you know, even lockdown now being over, have we all returned really to going out maybe as much Mm. as, you know, I, and I think while you're sort of in it, it's a bit like training for a marathon. I've never done that. Or, um, <laughs> I. you know, being a some kind of athlete, although you're the exact opposite because you just want to sit still and mm-hmm. eat chips. But, or I do, you are focused on something. And so other th- you're just trying to get through all the essentials. 
How do you counterbalance that when you get to the end of the day and you've done numerous jobs and you're researching for you know things you've got coming up next and you've got all of this IVF treatment going on? Do you have a specific way that you can take yourself away from all of the noise and all of the exterior world and just recalibrate and, and get yourself back to square one? Because I... I have to be on my own. Like if I don't have moments carved out where I'm completely on my own, whether I'm feeling mentally well or not, I need that. And uh, and I didn't have that last week. And I felt myself tipping to complete overwhelm, really? which I really don't like because I know that's going to go to panic, to insomnia. And I know the little fallout from there. But I know if I can just have a bit of time on my own, I'll I can breathe and I I can I can deal with it. Do you have a, a set way of of coping? No, I, well I think that's that's good to hear. You know, it's mm. always interesting to hear how people do it. I one of my greatest things and loves in life is having a really hot bath, oh. and you can't do that the oh. last bit of IVF once the embryo's gone in. So I do mainline baths in the run up to that. Yeah, I love like, like two a day, like scorching. Though, yeah. you know, almost. Sort of illegal. Too hot. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the fire brigade might need to come. Um, you know, it sort of frightens frightens my husband. Um, so there's that. But then linked to water, I, I just went away and it was really hot. We went to Greece and I was in the sea a lot. And walking around the sea, I don't want to swim. I just want to kind of look at it. be in and feel it on me. It's kind of like an immersion yeah. thing. I think you talked about this with Mini Driver. I'm obsessed the with the sea. Yeah, I'm not a cold water swimmer. Oh, so I love it all. I have done it. I'm not very hardy. I'll try and get better for him. Um, but, but You've got enough going on. Do yeah, it down the line. The water. Yeah, I don't want to survive anything right now. I <laughs> no, want, no, I no, want, no. I want, I want to just feel... I think being warm is yeah. basically quite Comfort. a key. Yes, and, and tea. And if we had um, a working fireplace, as opposed to one of those ones where they've put in something in the middle and I don't quite know how to do it. It's all fancy. <laughs> I just had have a... In the winter, I'd have yeah. a roaring fire. So I think, yes, comfort of some description. And I do find reading for pleasure which is a rarity because I'm often like filleting a book Same. or you know having to read an article or whatever mm. but if it's genuinely going to take me to a story that really helps me and the cinema do you know what it's um I think in times like this when you're going through something could be anything but a personal challenge we don't often lean into self-compassion and it is the most important thing for you to feel okay and it can be whatever you want it to be it can be you know, it can be as surface as going to a spa and getting your nails done, or it could be just not talking in a really negative way to yourself, mm. which we all do. How do you deal with that voice? Because, I, you know, I still deal with that voice all the time. I, my, do you? Do you? Oh, constantly negative, internal, just berating yeah, me you, about you everything. You host Happy Place. You feel you've got there, right? I, I only do it because <laughs> I've got loads to talk about because I've got so much weird <laughs> shit going on in my head. That's the only reason. I've always got something to say because there's always something mad going on in my head. <laughs> but I'm constantly dealing with this horrible little bitchy voice. It's always there. And some days I'm really good at dealing with it and I just go, oh, fuck off. I just won't listen to it. Or I'll just, I can hear it, but I'm not paying attention to it. But other times when I'm overtired, overwhelmed, or if I'm, in anxiety or whatever, that voice is ruling me and it's taking me to some not very nice places. I think most people going through anything challenging, you know, have to deal with that sort of level of internal, just bollocks, ongoing sort of chatter. Do you Have you had to deal with that? Do you deal we, with that? We have it by design, don't we? Yeah. I mean, you'll know all about this with some of the people you've spoken to, that, that we are set up to sabotage yeah. ourselves. Completely. So, yeah, and then as I said, I did a few bits of hormone, a few pills. Like it's uh, it's it's fun, it's fun yeah. up there. But I do because of this daily discipline. It's four days a week of being live on air. There are at least a chunk, a good chunk of the day where you can't think. And then what I would say, and I recognise of, of the huge amazingness that to have this is then I do most of the school pickups because I can't do drop-offs because I leave the house too early for the morning meeting <clears throat> at the BBC so then you're in school pickup mode and you're going to the library or you're going for a nice little I don't know cupcake or whatever you're doing or you're going to the park so there's quite large bits of the day where there's not which is probably why what you're saying about needing to be alone where you don't really think at all like mm. you know the voice can't really get in or, or whatever your version of that is um and I, I think because you're not really drinking in my particular set of scenarios, you're not having any hot, hot baths, you know, there's, 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 there's textures and joys that you can't quite access because you're on this treadmill. 
um, that you got to take the good when you can take it and whatever that looks like. As you said, I like having my nails done. There are, th- yeah. there are just those things. Uh, and then I just, I think, you know, learning actually how to breathe is really important. And mm. I only recently found out I don't breathe properly. Yeah. Like, apparently, I don't wash my hair properly, but that's a whole other... <laughs> I love your hair. It's, like, exceptional. <laughs> I lo- I've been looking at your hair the whole it's, time. This is, like, five-part tra- dry shampoo. You know, <laughs> that's, the, that's the best way. It's like the Debbie Harry way. It's the best way. But somebody really, like, brilliant uh, told me recently that I um, don't wash the back of my hair that much, which I've just okay. learned to do at the age of 37. <laughs> that's disgusting. Um, and it was a bit like during lockdown when we didn't have any hair and makeup on Newsnight, and my mum said to me, you do know we can see the back of your head, and it needs dealing with. Right. Thank you, mum. Did you Thanks, enjoy mom. what it was about yeah did you hear what i was saying no no, no we just about just your hair. Hair. yeah and it's hd emma okay right um so so you know there are things breathing though very mm. very key after having a child i had pelvic floor issues not the usual ones where everything is if you jump up and down and you're going to do a wee me. i'm hypertonic i'm the opposite right. and one of the only ways to bring that down apart from physio to actually release is breathing problem is i find it very boring it's so boring. It's so boring. It's so boring. But there's a direct connection between the jaw and our pelvic and floor. It. You can and feel it's, it. You can feel it. It's so powerful. And I've seen an amazing physio and she said, I know you find it really boring. Yeah, you've got to do it. But please, could you just do your homework? Yeah. Um, so I was told off. Right. And I'm trying to wash my hand. I'm trying to breathe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Doing all the right things. It's, you know, what? I just think the self-compassion thing is just so huge when you're going through stuff. And I like that you've got really you know, solid coping mechanisms to to make you feel great, whether it's just breathing, being by the sea, having a bath, getting your nails done. This stuff is important. It's really key, as well as gorgeous friends that you can cry to and stomp around the streets with. And my husband. And support. And your lovely husband. I really shouldn't miss, you know, we've been together since university and, you know, he can't get it all, but he is going through it. And we do really talk about it. You know, I want to say a lot. Uh, he doesn't have always that much to say on it, and he do, he's not somebody who's going to make it up just to fill fill airtime. Uh, you know, he's not. Um, but I appreciate that as well because I've got to respect that it's a completely different experience, and he's not having to inject himself. So let's just be grateful for that. That's there's no male pill. There's a reason there's no male pill. Yeah. Men go into the tests. And they say, I've got a headache or I feel a bit bloated. And then they stop the trial. That's actually true. Is that's, it really? That's why there's no male that's pill. That's terrifying. What women are are willing and able to go through, because we don't, ironically for this conversation, want children. Uh, we want to be able to control rather when we have them. We don't want unplanned children uh, because of how much it changes our lives. That's what we're willing to go through. But we go through that shit anyway. Because <laughs> we're having a period every month. I mean, exactly. I'm on my period right now. And I said to my husband yesterday, Oh my god, I'm forty, and I still am like shocked that I have to go through this every month. Isn't it still weirdly, sweetly kind of? Oh, it's quite sweet about yourself that I'm like, no. oh, it's here again. Oh, it's here again, and, and I haven't got something on me. No. How have I not got something? Jesse on just me? had to go out and get me tampons. That's you how saw I just, him with the bag. That's how I just met him. I he had a bag of tampons. A bag of tampons and a cat me. on his leg. <laughs> cat. I mean, this is very regular in our house, but I still go. We have to go through this every fucking month. Like it's You're going to get a message now about, have you heard of moon cups? I know I've not tried moon cups. I know, I know. And I know it's bad for the planet and I need to get on the moon cup. I'm a bit scared of moon cups. Loads of my friends use them. I just need to get on with it. I just, I'm putting it off. I'm, I'm, on, I'm an honest person. We've opened I'm a putting whole it off. other moon cup here. We're, we're, really we're, we really have. <laughs> it's, I mean... Oh my God, this is going to be, it's going to kick off on social media. Holy shit. But I'm prepared for it because I know I've got to do it. I know I've got to try the moon cup. But again, men haven't got to try the moon cup. It's not even a consideration. Um, Emma, I, I'm very, very grateful that we've had this conversation today. Me but too. I, I'm, I'm super, super grateful that you wrote that article because it, it was so powerful to read. It was, I learned so much from it. It was really eye opening to me. And I love reading literature that is just, you know, it hits you between the eyes and you're like, right, I need to learn more about this and understand it more. And it's brilliant to be able to follow it up with chatting to you today. And I wish you all the love and, and happiness in the world going forward. Thank you, Fern. And I promise I'll wash my hair when I next see you. I couldn't give a shit about your hair. I think it looks (laughs) wicked as it is. Oh, Emma, I love talking to you. Thank you so much for coming to the house and being so generous with your experiences, both today and also more widely in your writing and broadcasting. I loved having Emma over and she even bought biscuits, which was very, very kind. 
We need to be having more of these conversations and people will absolutely feel more able to talk about parts of life they're struggling with once someone else has opened the door. That's why I love doing this podcast. That's why I love having these chats. That's why I love hearing from you brilliant lot. If you would like to sign up to Emma's new newsletter, Trying, which I advise you to do regardless of gender or whether you're a parent, it really is for everyone. We'll pop a link to subscribe in the show notes. While you're still on your podcast app, make sure you're following Happy Place so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Instagram too. We're at Happy Place Official. Until next week, lovely people, thank you so much again to Emma, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you beautiful lot for listening. I love you, and I'll see you soon. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com